Thanks for listening to the Faith Church Podcast. We are one church at five locations, streaming online every Sunday morning at live.faithishere.org. We hope that you're challenged and encouraged by today's message. And if you'd like to watch or listen to previous messages, or if you'd like to learn more about who we are as a church and how you can stay connected, head over to faithishere.org. That guy uh, ran the Boston Marathon. He was in Afghanistan and lost his legs and ran 26 miles. Isn't that amazing? Carrying the flag, the American flag, the entire way. I couldn't run the Boston Marathon with two good legs, without a flag, any way, shape, or form. My my running days were not very glamorous. Uh, I remember when I was at camp as a kid, and we had... uh, uh, we had Olympic activities. It was an Olympic year, and so they had events going on all throughout the week. And I entered the mile run, and uh, it was towards the end of the week, and we're, that was the mile run time, and they had runners from all the teams lining up. And so I volunteered for my team, and uh, the gun sounded, and I took off. And I took off with a blaze, and I was running so fast. And I was out in front of everybody, and I was flying around that first turn, and I made that turn, and I'm going down the second stretch, and I'm flying, just, and I'm looking, I'm still ahead, and I'm amazed, and then something happens. I begin to run out of gas, and uh, all of a sudden, I start slowing down, and that sprinter's pace that I started out with to run a mile is not sustainable. And so what happens is people start passing me around the second turn and they're going by me and I'm looking around and I get to turn three and by the time I got to turn three, every single runner in the race had passed me up and I was in dead last place. And finally, by the time I got to turn four, I'm walking now, I am cramping so bad, I am hurting so bad, I am in so much pain. And so I wasn't built for long distance running. I really wasn't built for any kind of running, but long distance was really, really one of the weak things that that I did. And so what happens though, I think in the Christian life, People start with such that gun sounds and they accept the Lord and they start following the Lord with such joy and such enthusiasm and such excitement. They're on this new journey and they they get out of the starting blocks and they take off as fast as they can go. But somewhere along the way, if we are not careful, that joy will ebb out of our life. It will begin to flow out of our life and we become exhausted in the race. We become exhausted in the running. But I want to tell you the Christian life is not like a hundred yard dash. It is like a marathon. And so we are learning from the apostle Paul and Paul is going to change analogies. Last week, if you were here, we saw Paul, the accountant, and he measured everything in terms of profit and loss. And he began to add up all the things that he had done in his life, circumcised on the eighth day a Hebrew of the Hebrews, a Pharisee, a zealous Pharisee of the tribe of Benjamin. But he says, I count all those things as loss compared to knowing Christ Jesus, the one gain. If if anything else, if I may gain Christ 
And so he began to show the balance sheet and we saw Paul the accountant. Now he's gonna change metaphors and he's gonna move into a metaphor of a racer, someone who is running a race. And so let's stand together. This is a very, to me, a very exciting uh, passage of scripture. I think it's the heart of the book of Philippians. Uh, there are so many good passages all throughout Philippians, but, but to me, this is kind of right here, right in the center, the climax, the heart of this letter that he wrote to the church of Philippi, beginning with verse number 12. Not that I have already obtained all this or have already been made perfect, but I press to take hold of that for which Christ Jesus took hold of me. I press. Brothers, I do not consider yet myself to have taken hold of it, but one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining toward what is ahead. Straining, pushing, running. I press on towards the goal to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. Wow. Father, we love you so much. We just pray, God, as we open up the word of God today, you will open up our hearts and our minds and our spirits to receive what you have for us, that we can run this Christian race with joy and perseverance and diligence. We thank you, God, that we might win that prize. Father, right now, I just pray for Becky Redman. I pray, God, you'll reach down and touch her at MUSC in the intensive care room right now. We thank you, God, that you're our healer. We're thankful that you are our great physician. So touch her mind and her brain and, and touch her body and heal her completely, we pray. We pray for others in this place that may be in need of a healing touch today, need your strength, need your power. We thank you, God, that you're our healer. And so those who are hurting, God, lift them up before you today. We love you, God. We thank you for this word. And I pray you'll open up to our hearts and minds. We ask it in your mighty name. Amen and amen. God bless you. You may be seated. I want to tell you, first of all, just to clear it up, this is not a passage on how we get saved. This is not a passage on your salvation. It is like the other passages in the book of Philippians. He is already assuming that you know the Lord Jesus Christ. He's writing to the church at Philippi. He writes to all the saints who are at Philippi. So this is in no way telling us how we can earn or work for our salvation. You can never ever earn your salvation. It is the gift of God. It is by God's free grace. Last week we saw that his righteousness was imputed onto us through what Christ did on Calvary. Aren't you glad? We cannot, we cannot ever save ourselves. But I run the Christian race to achieve all that God has for me. I run this race to fulfill the purpose for which God saved me and which God made me and designed me. And so every believer is on the track and we have a special lane that he has marked out for us. We have a special calling that he has marked out for us, a special place he wants to use us in our lane, running, serving, and following the Lord Jesus Christ. And I want to tell you, we can run this race with joy today. Joyful, joyful race. Paul says, I run that I might win the prize. The prize of the heavenward call of God in Christ Jesus. I want, I want to give you some lessons, four simple lessons right here from these 
three verses of how we can really be winners in this Christian life, winners in this Christian race that God has called us to. And number one, I think if you're going to be a winner, you need to have a, what I would call a holy dissatisfaction. A holy dissatisfaction. Look, if you would, again at verse number 12. Not that I have already obtained this or have already been made perfect. Now, I want to tell you something. Paul says, I have not yet arrived. The moment you think you have arrived spiritually, you are in trouble. Paul says, I haven't already obtained that for which Christ has already obtained me and saved me. I haven't arrived yet spiritually. I haven't reached my full potential. And Paul's writing this, and when we look at Paul's letter and all that Paul did, all of us pale in comparison to the apostle Paul. He's a church planner. He's an author. He's an anointed preacher. There were many signs and wonders and miracles done underneath his ministry. He is an intercessor for the church. He is a soldier in the kingdom of God. He is a mighty Christian man, an incredible missionary. But he says he was never satisfied with all these attainments. All that Paul did starting churches all throughout Asia Minor, he says, I have still not arrived. I, I, think, I think if we are going to win the race, there's got to be something within us, that, what I would call a holy dissatisfaction that keeps us pressing on to know Christ more, to draw closer to him. Paul was completely satisfied with Jesus Christ, but he was not completely satisfied with his own spiritual progress. I have not yet obtained. And I I, I think today we live with that tension. And let me kind of describe the tension to you. Now in Christ Jesus, I have died with him. I have been crucified with Christ when I gave my life to him. And yet, I'm still a sinner. Am I the only one? The only one in the house. Now I have been reckoned by God as righteous through the Lord Jesus Christ. And yet now I am very much in my own being very unrighteous. And if I think I'm all that good and all that righteous in myself, the word of God says all my own righteousness is like filthy rags. The tension. Now I am powerful through the resurrection power of the Lord Jesus Christ. I talked a little bit about that last week and through the presence of his Holy Spirit, and yet I am still very frail in my own flesh. And so there's this tension between the already and the not yet. I'm already saved, sanctified, washed in the blood on my way to heaven, but I am not yet there. And in my own self, my own life, Got a long way to go. Still struggle with things. Still battle, warfare going on. Paul seemed to always be learning in the school of Christ. Look at Romans chapter 11, verse 33. Listen to this. Oh, the depth of the riches of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his paths beyond tracing out. Who has known the mind of the Lord? Who has known the mind of the Lord? Oh, how the depth of his riches and wisdom and knowledge. How can we begin to know the mind of the Lord? It's so far beyond our human understanding. And I want to tell you, we have not yet obtained. We have not yet arrived. 
There is so much more about the Lord to learn and grow. Self-satisfaction occurs when I compare myself with the other runners in the race. I'm doing pretty good. I'm out in front of the pack. I'm better than George. I'm better than Tom. I'm better than Sally. I'm, I'm a little bit out in front of them. They're messing up. They're blowing it. And I'm doing pretty good. And we get a little self-satisfied when we see other runners falling behind in the race. But what that happens is it leads to a pride and a false estimation of our own spiritual condition. Self-satisfaction. Paul says, I have not yet obtained. I keep pressing. I keep running. I keep moving forward. Never stop. John writes about a church, writes his letter to seven churches in Asia Minor. One of the churches that he wrote to was the church at Laodicea. In the Laodicean church, he has some very strong words for them in in Revelation chapter 3. And here's what they say in verse 17. He says, you say, I am rich, I have acquired wealth, and I do not need a thing. He says, the Laodiceans, you say, this is your estimate of yourself, wealthy, Rich, don't need anything. We have arrived. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. You see, their estimation of themselves was not where they were at spiritually. And when you begin to think you've arrived and you're satisfied with your Christian life and your Christian growth and your Christian whoever you are and how good you are and how wonderful and awesome you are, immediately you become what I would say is lukewarm. And your spiritual fervor goes down and your temperature goes down because you quit running in that race. And Paul says to the Laodiceans, you are neither hot nor cold, you are lukewarm. And so because you're lukewarm, I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. You nauseate me. This self-satisfaction that I'm there, I'm arrived, and I'm awesome, and I'm great, and ooh, boy, just isn't God lucky to have me. Paul had no illusions concerning himself. God always had more, so he always kept pressing forward. And so he says, I press, I strain, I move, I run, I don't stop, because there's always more of God's glory, more of God's grace, more of God's presence, more of the Lord Jesus Christ and his power and his might in my life. Never, never satisfied. Look at Psalm 42. Listen to what David had to say, an amazing psalm here. It says, As the deer pants for streams of water, so my soul pants for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. Is there that panting for more of God? Is your soul panting after him? There needs to be a holy dissatisfaction if we're going to keep running. Number two, I think there needs to be a single devotion. A single devotion. Look, if you would, at verse number three, 13, excuse me. He says, brothers, I, uh, I do not consider myself yet to have taken hold of it, but one thing, everybody say one thing. But one thing I do, forget what's behind and strain towards what is ahead. There is one thing I do, one thing. When Jesus talks to a rich young ruler who had much wealth and kept all the law and thought he was a great guy, 
Jesus said to him, one thing is needful. And he tells him to sell all he has and give it away to the poor. One thing, one thing. It's the one thing that was lacking in his life. When Martha is cleaning the house and Mary is sitting at the feet of Jesus Christ, learning from him and waiting on him and worshiping him, Jesus said to Martha, one thing is needful. One thing is needful. Psalm 27, verse four. One thing have I desired of the Lord that I will seek after. You see, the problem is we get involved in so many things, we forget to do the main thing. Let me say that to you again. We get involved in so many things, we forget to do the main thing. Sometimes we lack joy and we, because we get so stressed out, we get so spread out. Have you ever, remember the juggler? He used to split, spin the plates and he'd start one plate going on a stick and then he'd go to the next plate and start spinning that and he'd start spinning this plate. And, and we are like that guy spinning plates and we've got so much going on in our life and all of a sudden what happens? Those plates begin to wobble and he tries to keep them going and he's jumping back and forth and pretty soon the plates start falling off the stick and they start crashing on the ground, right? Remember that analogy? You've seen that before. And I think what happens is in our life, we are spinning so many plates, we forget the one main thing. And we can't win the race. We can't win the prize. If you have an athlete who's a really just a real good athlete all throughout school, they can play all the sports in elementary school. They're playing football and baseball and basketball, and they get to junior high, and they're still probably on every team they got in their school. But at some point, that high school coach is going to come to him and says, you know what, you've got a future in football. Or you've got a future in basketball, or you're really best at baseball. I want you to drop those other sports, and I want you to focus all your time and attention on this one sport. And so, because when you get to college, they're going to draft you, and all those amazing athletes, they're not playing football and basketball and baseball. They're choosing the one main thing to focus their practice on, their time on, their attention on, their study on, their training for. You've got to choose if you're gonna move to the next level. You can't carry all these sports with you. Yes, you're an amazing athlete and you probably could play any one of them. LeBron James probably would have been an amazing uh, tight end in football. He might have been an amazing baseball player, but he focused on the one thing, basketball, and he's one of the greatest players in the world today because he focused on the one thing. And I want to tell you, in our Christian life, he says, one thing I do, I forget what's behind me, and I keep pressing on towards the gold, the prize of the high calling in Christ Jesus. I love the story in the Old Testament about Nehemiah. He's up on the wall, and he's building this wall and trying to get the defenses built around the city of Jerusalem after they've returned back from their exile. And there were enemies that didn't want to see a strong Israel. And so they kept coming against the Jews who are rebuilding the wall, trying to get them to stop. They try to intimidate them. They try to do whatever it can to stop the building program from taking place. And so the enemies came and they told Nehemiah, get down off of that wall. Let's talk. Let's discuss this. They're kind of laying a plot possibly to assassinate him or kill him or whatever the case might be. And here's what Nehemiah says in Nehemiah 6 and verse 3. I am doing a great work so that I cannot come down. I want to tell you the greatest work you can be involved in is kingdom work. 
I'm, I'm involved in God's kingdom. I'm involved in that which is eternal. I'm involved in seeing souls come to know the Lord Jesus Christ. I am doing a great work. That's the most important thing we can do, and therefore, I cannot come down. James writes in James 1 and verse 8, a double-minded man is unstable in all his ways. And so we're spinning plates and then we wonder, where's my joy? And we're wondering why we're not growing in the Lord Jesus Christ. And we're wondering not why we're not effective in our ministry. Because we've got so many things that we are doing. And we f- don't focus on the main thing. One thing. And then number three. Paul always had a forward direction. If you're going to win the race, if you're going to progress in this Christian life and grow and fulfill what God wants you to do, then you need to have a forward thinking direction, a forward moving direction. Look, if you would, again at verse number 13. He says, one thing I do, forgetting what is behind and straining towards what is ahead. Henry Ward Beecher makes this statement. I think it's profound. He says, the next, next to a good memory is a good forgettery. Next to a good memory is a good forgettery. Now, when we talk about forgetting what is behind, the Bible use of the word forget doesn't mean to erase your memories. You cannot erase your brain, your memory. It's a computer. It's all stored up there. It's an amazing thing that God created. So you won't forget what happened or how it happened, or you can't erase your memory bank. But to forget biblically means to cease to let the past overshadow the present. To cease to let your past overshadow what's going on in the present. Uh, both the good and the bad. He says, I forget what's behind. He doesn't say whether it's good stuff behind me or bad stuff behind me. I still forget that. I put that behind me because God still has a work for me to do in the future. I never stop moving forward. I'm no longer affected by my past. Uh, Hebrews 10, 17 says, their sins and iniquities I will remember no more. How many know that God is God and he knows everything? So what's it mean when he says my sin, their sins and iniquities I will remember no more? It means I will not let those sins and things that you have done in your past uh, affect my, the way I treat you in the future. They are gone, they are covered in the blood, they are forgiven, uh, they will never ever be brought again. It will not influence your future, aren't you glad? God doesn't have a bad memory, but he no longer holds our past sins against us. That's what it means. Now, now that when the Bible says we're to forgive one another, you can't forgive somebody if you keep dragging up their past. You hang on to everything they did that hurt you. If you brood over that, if you hold back something from them, real biblical forgiveness means I don't let the past, even though you can't forget what they did to you in the past, I don't let the past affect my future. I will treat you like that event never, ever happened. And only when you do that have you really forgiven. Keep bringing it up. If you keep a record of it, if it always stays there, you haven't engaged in real biblical forgiveness. You've got to treat it like it hasn't, doesn't affect the future. Now, here's the thing. 
Paul says, I forget what's behind me. So what I gotta do is forget my past sins, my past failures, my past hurt, because what happens is if I hang on to that, those memories will always disqualify me from the race and winning, and instead of having joy in my life, I am hooked to what's happened in the past. That person that hurt me holds sway over my life. So I have no joy. I've blown it. I've, I've messed up. Someone did this to me. Someone was mean to me. I, I, I had this terrible background. All these things happened to me. As long as you are dwelling on that, you will never, ever have the joy that God wants you to have. And so you've got to have a good forgettery. You've got to forget those hurts and pains and those things that will weigh you down. Don't let it held sway over your present and over your future. Suppose the apostle Paul had brooded over his death with Stephen. You remember the story? They took Stephen out, the first martyr in Acts chapter 7, and they, are gonna, they stone him to death. And who was right there? Saul of Tarsus. And he's holding all the garments. And they're hurling rocks at Stephen. And Stephen is dying and he's bleeding. And so you got this bloody mess. He's falling to the ground. He's crying out in pain. And in the midst of his cries and gasping for air, what's he do? He prays a prayer similar to Jesus on Calvary. Father, forgive them. Father, forgive them. And instead of letting that pass, how miserable a murderer he was, When he had his encounter with the Lord Jesus Christ, he simply marveled at the greatness of God's grace that God could save somebody like Saul of Tarsus and turn him in the apostle Paul. And he keeps always moving forward. Mm. To allow the past to drag you down with guilt and failure, listen to me, contradicts everything we confess about the healing, forgiving, and redeeming power of God. I'm going to read this. This is a good one. Get this. Just You may want to jot this down at the bottom of your notes here. To allow the past to drag you down with guilt and failure contradicts everything we confess about God's forgiving, healing, and redeeming power. Doesn't make sense. We say God has power to forgive. God has power to cleanse. God can heal our wounds and our hurts and our pains. If you hang on to that, you are contradicting what you speak verbally. You're choosing to be bound by your past. And it will keep you from moving forward and winning the race. One thing I do, I've got to let the past go. I've got to forget the past. Not only do we got to forget our past hurts, we got to forget our past triumphs. It's easy to live in the success of our past as well and say, boy, wasn't I a great Christian way back then? Wasn't I a great follower of Jesus? Well, didn't I do amazing things when I was involved in this ministry and that ministry? And we kind of live in the past and we fail to seize the day. There was a famous painter who was working with promising art students, teaching them how to paint. And he he would only take the best and the brightest. And so they would all begin to paint and work on their works. And there was one student that was very exceptional. And he actually painted a very, very beautiful painting. But when he got done painting that painting, he dropped his paint. He just set his paintbrush down, his paints down. He hung that picture up in a very prominent place. And all he would do was stare at that painting. My, aren't I good? 
Look how great that painting is. He would invite his friends to come over. Come look and see what I painted. Look how amazing it was. And it stayed in the studio. It stayed in that teacher's studio for a while. And people would come by and they would look at how good that painting was. And he would talk about how great it was. And he would just just gaze into it. One day he came home and they came back into the art gallery. And he looked and there was black paint smeared all over that painting. And the guy went hysterical. He began to sob. And he said, who did this What happened to my painting? And the teacher just stepped back and he watched all that take place. And finally he spoke up and he says, I did it for your own good. You have greater pictures within your soul, but you will never put them on canvas as long as you're satisfied with this one. Wow. That young artist picked up the paintbrush and began to paint again. And today his paintings hang in galleries all over Europe. You have greater paintings still to be put on canvas. You'll never do it as long as you're looking back at the past. God left to take the, took the children of Israel out of Egypt and they're out there and they've, they've, they've been in Egypt and they crossed the Red Sea and they're, they're heading to the promised land and they're making their journey. And, and what happens though is the children of Israel, they get water every, they have water, they have manna, they have all they need to make it in the wilderness to get to the promised land. But they kept looking back to Egypt, right? They look back. They weren't looking forward to the promised land. Look at Numbers chapter 11. Numbers 11 and verse number four. The rabble with them began to crave other food. And again, the Israelites started wailing and saying, if only we had meat to eat. We remember the fish we ate in Egypt at no cost. Also the cucumbers, the melons, the leeks, the onions, and the garlics. And now we have lost our appetite. We never see anything but this manna. So God teaches them a lesson. Cause the east wind to blow, the quail come flying in from all over, and they begin to devour the quail. And the Bible describes the Israelites even dying as they're stuffing the quail in their mouth. They're trying to eat it so fast, they begin to choke on the meat that they receive. Listen to me. Leeks and garlic Christians obsess over the good old days. Oh, that's the time God was really moving. That's when we had church. That's when we sang those special songs. That's when we had revival. And they they talk about the good old days so much so that they're living in the good old days and they're not moving forward to what God wants to do in their lives today. Fixed in the past. Paul says, one thing I do, forget what is behind. Forget the leeks and the onions and the garlic and the fish because I'm heading to the promised land. There's a prize laid up before me, a prize, a crown of righteousness. If you run the race and you are looking back, they will pass you up when you're looking back, or worse yet, you will stumble and fall along the way. Take a look at this little video clip we found. Beat the freeze, they give the uh, contestant a head start, and then watch this guy in the freeze suit. This is the greatest thing I've ever seen. Watch this, folks. I mean, the guy had, what, a 200-foot head start? At least. Look at this guy go. This guy is beautiful. Look at this guy. The guy, the guy, the guy thought, he thought he was going to win. Exactly. <laughs> oh, that's where he belongs, right in the 
dirt. <laughs> and he falls flat on his face. If we're looking back, we're looking back, we're going to stumble and fall on the way. The fourth thing that you need if you're going to win the race is a relentless determination. Look at verse number 14. He says, I press, I press on towards the prize of the high calling in Christ Jesus. The word impress, I press, is a very intense term. It's almost like a runner who would strain to cross the finish line and, and break the ropes. It's also used as an expression for a hunter who is pressing to capture his prey. And so he's relentlessly pressing on his endeavor. You don't become a winning athlete by listening to the lectures watching movies, reading books, or cheering at the games. You don't become an athlete by watching athletes on TV, by reading about athletes, by hearing about athletes. But you enter the games with a determination to win, to win. Paul's always moving forward. For the Apostle Paul, there were new churches to plant, new converts to be won, new disciples to be discipled and grow in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so he would endure trials along the way. Even though the going wasn't always easy, he kept pressing, pressing, pressing. One more soul, one more church, one more person. Because there's a prize, he says, waiting for us. And he says, the prize is the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. And so there's that prize that today, because God is always calling us, but listen, one day he will say, well done, thou good and faithful servant. Enter into the joy of the Lord. That's the prize that the apostle Paul is ultimately striving for. Paul's purpose was tied to eternity. And his joy was fulfilling that purpose. Paul's purpose is tied to the heavenward call of God in Christ Jesus. And the joy came for fulfilling the purpose for which God called him heavenward. What powerful, powerful words. I want to share one story with you. Turn, if you would, to Luke chapter 10. Luke chapter 10. This is a powerful story. And let me read it to you, and then I'll explain it to you very quickly. It says in verse 17, the 72 return with joy. Okay, now, the 72 have joy. We're talking about joy. How do we find joy? How do we keep joy? How do we get it? The 72 come back out of the cities. They return with joy. They are so happy, so excited. Joy. Lord, even the demons submit to us in your name. And he replied, I saw Satan fall like lightning from heaven. Now I've given you authority to trample on snakes and scorpions to overcome all powers of the enemy. Nothing will harm you. However, do not, look at the word not, not rejoice that the spirits submit to you, but rejoice that your names are written in heaven. Now, now you got the scene. They're, they are so happy. They're so excited. They, they haven't had this much joy in ages. They said, Lord, we saw devils. We were casting out devils. We put Satan on the run. And Jesus says, you know, you guys did good. You did okay. That's, that's fine. That's well and good. But I, I want to tell you, I, 
I've already taken care of the devil and he's covered and I've, I've got him. He said, don't rejoice in that. Don't rejoice in your last victory and your last big win. Rejoice that you are tied to that which is eternal. Rejoice because your names are written down in the Lamb's Book of Life. Rejoice because you have a future home ready and secured for you. Rejoice in that. See, here's the deal. Circumstances are always changing. And if your joy is tied to your circumstances or your latest victory, what happens when you strike out? If it's only your last home run, what happens the next time you get up to play? And what happens is our joy goes up and down, up and down, up and down, because our joy is tied to the temporary. It's tied to my circumstances. It's tied to what's going on around me. He says, but if you really want to know real joy, attach your joy to that which is eternal, heaven. That's why I can have joy no matter what's going on around me because my joy is fixed to that which is eternal. Now look at the next verse, verse 21. At that time, Jesus, full of joy through the Holy Spirit said, I praise you, Father, Lord of heaven and earth, because you have hidden these things from the wise and the learned and revealed them to the little children. Yes, your Father, for this was your good pleasure. In other words, he says, my disciples are learning a lesson today. They're learning something about joy. And now it says, and Jesus now, full of joy, says, I thank you, God, that my disciples can begin to share in my eternal joy. Now, now here's the key. Listen to me. If you have Jesus Christ, you already have joy within you. Why? Because the Bible said Jesus Christ is full of joy. So I, as a child of God, share in his joy. I am tied to that which is eternal. But we forget it when our circumstances go wrong and our joys up and down, up and down. All we do is stir up the joy that is already within us through the Lord Jesus Christ and remember and reckon what he has done and we get up the next day and say, God, I rejoice in you. I thank you that you're my Lord. I thank you that you're my Savior. I thank you that you get everything you need. I thank you that you are with me and I am in you and we will share in this joy together. That's joy. That's the secret of joy. Challenge is when you feel you've lost that joy, sometimes it seems so hard to find. So much of our joy is fleeting, passing. It is a perpetual pursuit of more joy, and so what happens is we tend to begin to live for the weekend. If I can just survive this week, if I can just make it through, oh, if I can just get to Friday night, get to go out to eat. Turn, one more, I gotta I got do one more. Turn to Hebrews 12. I, I, I got to end this. Hebrews 12. Look, you would, verse number two. I want, I want you to see this. Let us fix our eyes on Jesus, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the, what's the word there? That's weak. Who for the joy set before him did what? Endured the cross, scorning its shame sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. What enabled Jesus Christ to go to Calvary? The joy set before him. 
He knew there was a heavenward calling of God in Christ Jesus. So it took him to and through the cross, who for the joy set before him, doesn't matter what's going on, my joy, eternal joy, is fixed to that which is eternal, Christ Jesus. A couple weeks ago, guy goes into a church, shoots down 26 kills, 26 people, 26 people. And, 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 and we begin to think, you know, and, and we look at that event and we become very saddened. We grieve with those who were killed. We, we, in some way, identify with their pain. Probably most of them, if not all of them, were brothers and sisters in the Lord Jesus Christ. And they are needlessly gunned down. But if our joy is fixed to that which is temporary, it will get you down and drag you down. But because my joy is fixed to that which is eternal, the Lord Jesus Christ, I know that nothing can defeat the church because the word of God says, I will build my church and the gates of hell cannot prevail against it. So my temporary joy never gives way to my permanent joy because it is tied and fixed to that which is eternal, the Lord Jesus Christ. Fullness of joy. Always moving to the prize that the heaven will recall in Christ Jesus. Turn to 2 Timothy chapter 4. Look at verse number 6. 2 Timothy 4, verse 6. Let me give you the backdrop. Paul is about to face, this is the very last letter the apostle Paul wrote. He's in Roman prison for the second time. He wrote the first four prison epistles uh, the first time he was in the Roman jail. This is the second time he's back in Rome. And he writes this last letter to his beloved son in the faith, Timothy. And his execution is probably just days away. And this is what he says. Listen to it. For I'm already being poured out like a drink offering. The time has come for my departure. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the race. I've finished the race. I have kept the faith. Now there is for me in store for me a crown of righteousness which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day, not only for me, but also to all have longed for his appearing. And so they take the apostle Paul out, they march him down the corridors, they they place his head, they chop off his head, and they think they are wiping out the apostle Paul, but when the, the ax comes down, he is simply being ushered into his coronation day. The prize, the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. That's the prize. Are you locked on that which is eternal? Are you up and down, up and down like a yo-yo? Depending on whether the sun's shining or raining. And so what do we do as children of God? We keep pressing on to win the prize for which God has called me heavenward in Christ Jesus. Let me ask you a question, one question this morning. What are you running for? Thanks for listening to the Faith Church Podcast. We are one church at five locations, streaming online every Sunday morning at live.faithishere.org. We hope that you're challenged and encouraged by today's message. And if you'd like to watch or listen to previous messages, or if you'd like to learn more about who we are as a church and how you can stay connected, head over to faithishere.org.